I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. I want to thank you so much, first of all, for taking the time to listen to this show. I know your time's really valuable. There are a lot of shows out there. So thank you so much for trying something new and joining us for the third episode of this first season. So I think you're really going to like our guest today. I know I do because he is someone I would describe as living my dream life. Um, He's someone who has lived the urban life. He has now escaped from the city and he is living in an ultra rural, absolutely breathtakingly beautiful part of the country in a tiny town called Joseph, Oregon. And so today's show is really a selfish one for me because this has just been a brutally hot week here in Los Angeles. It is late October. It has been over 100 degrees here every day. We have had record-setting heat. And I just, you know, everyone I meet, everyone I come across on the street, everyone has just had enough. And we are all plotting our escape. So I was excited to hear from someone who has actually done that and given me, you know, a little bit of inspiration to get me through this week. So our guest today is Greg Hennis, and he is the brainchild behind the newly launched Prairie Mountain Folk School, which is a center for folk education and traditional craft set amongst the wilderness of the Wallowa Mountains and the Zumwalt Prairie. And while you're listening to me talk, if if you're not driving a car right now, you might even want to just scroll over to Greg's Instagram page at Prairie Mountain School or his website, prairiemountainschool.com, because I don't know if my words can even do justice to just, you know, the sheer beauty and wildness of this part of the country or what Greg has set out to do there. Um, I didn't know about folk education before I met Greg. And he's, you know, he and his team are doing something really cool in Joseph. They are creating this community. You're going to hear more about it in just a second, but um, basically people can come from all over the world to relearn the traditional crafts of our ancestors that are on the brink of extinction. Blacksmithing, weaving, spoon carving, cabin building, and they can learn it from local craftspeople in this area who have lived in this area for decades and who are working to preserve this really important heritage. Greg has just a really fascinating personal story. He is incredibly passionate. You will hear about his mission with Prairie Mountain and particularly about why what he's doing is so important at this juncture in our human history. So I'm just excited that this winter, I will actually be up in Oregon with my family and hopefully weather permitting, um, we'll be able to take a side trip to Joseph and experience firsthand what Greg is creating there. So hopefully I will be posting more photos for you from there later this season. That's it for me. So thank you in advance for listening. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Greg Hennis on the Uncivilized podcast. Greg Hennis is an optimist dreamer with entrepreneurial tendencies and an abiding love of friends, community, and craft. He's been making chai in the morning for 17 years, can't keep white clothes clean, and likes finding solutions to problems. Greg, (laughs) welcome to the show. I'm impressed with the brevity of your bio. (laughs) Thank you, Jennifer. I, um, 
I try to keep it short. I, I, I appreciate that. But just for our listeners, I'm going to add, if you don't mind, that you are also the brainchild behind the Prairie Mountain Folk School, a center for traditional craft in Joseph, Oregon, and as well as you're also the owner of the Jennings Hotel, the world's first Kickstarter-funded hotel and artist residency. Did I get that right? That's true, although nothing is done in a vacuum, so I've had a, a lot of help with both of those projects. I can imagine. So can we start off with Prairie Mountain Folk School? I'd love to hear more about that. Can you tell us more about the project and how it came to be? Uh, well, I originally was introduced to the idea and the practice of folk education in 2010 when I took some folk school classes at a place in northern Minnesota called North House. They've been around, I think, for about 30 years now, and they're in a little town called Grand Marais on the North Shore of Lake Superior. It's a super beautiful place, and it so happened that my cousins had land up near there, and I asked them if I could build a cabin, and they said, yeah, sure, why not? And so then I started researching places to learn timber framing because it was a type of construction of that, that I was really interested in. And I found North House and it was only 17 miles from the land that my cousins owned. So that's where I was introduced to folk education, although it's been around for about 150 years. As a, it was started by a Danish philosopher and theologian, NFS Grundtvig, and he came up with this idea and it's kind of spread the world over now. So yeah, that's where it started for me. And and then when I found Wallow County and started visiting here and then eventually came to the idea of doing projects here, it was a big part of my process to try and figure out if a folk school would work here. And when, when it seemed like it would, that kind of cemented my desire and drive to be out here trying to do interesting projects. And so, but so where did you come from originally, though? Where, when you first discovered this craft school, uh, you said in Minnesota, right? Yeah. yeah so I so, grew up in Minnesota. Oh, you grew up in Minnesota. Okay. And did you grow yeah. up where in Minnesota? A small town? In the center, in central, in the central part of the state and outside of a town called St. Cloud. Of course. Of course. I've heard of St. Cloud. And so, um, was it like a small town existence? Tell me more about your childhood. Like, what, did you have a love of, craft and making things with your hands at an early age? Yeah, I mean, I started making stuff as a kid, uh, you know, tree houses and igloos and you know, bike ramps because I rode, you know, I rode BMX as a kid. So I started making bike ramps and fixing my bike and making dirt jumps for my, to you know, to ride bike on and and then shop classes in high school. So I was always kind of tinkering with making things, but I I think that that just kind of as a as time went on, I got more interested in design and, and the process of making things. And then eventually that led to making things in, you know, using older techniques and older skills to make things in traditional ways. Um, so that's kind of how I landed where where I am now. And where you work, did you set off on a certain career path? No, I've I've just been kind of cobbling things or for a long time was cobbling things together. I left Minnesota when I was 19 to move to the Northwest and landed in Portland and, and lived in Portland um, for 16 and a half years before coming out to Joseph. And I was, for a good chunk of that time, I was just doing the, the menial labor thing, picking up jobs wherever I could. And then eventually I started my own business in 2006 in Portland. And that kind of led to the other opportunities to, to do, you know, projects like the hotel and other stuff. Cause I was able to 
kind of create the space in my life and um, step back from that business, which allowed me to come out here on a full-time basis and work on stuff here. Oh, got it. Okay. And so, and what was that business? It's a photo equipment rental business. So we rent cameras, lenses, lighting, grip equipment. And then we also have a studio, a camera uh, photo studio in Portland too. Oh, well, that makes sense because you take the most beautiful photos I've ever seen. I Just Thank tell you. everyone what your Instagram handle is because the, the Instagram page is, you will look at it and then immediately want to drive to Joseph, Oregon. <laughs> well, there's a couple. There's my personal, which is at Greg Hennis. And then there's the hotel, which is at the Jennings Hotel. And then there's Prairie Mountain, which is at Prairie Mountain School. And you take all most of the photos for those sites. I do the personal and and um, hotel site. Uh, I take all the photos for, and then most of the stuff on the Prairie Mountain as well. That's amazing. And so, okay, so let's back up for a second. You're you have this uh, photography business in Portland, and then so what sent you to why Joseph? What what sent you there? Well, my first trip actually was with a good buddy of mine, Danny, who at the time was living down in Bend. Oregon. And we... Oh, I love Bend. We've been to Bend a couple of times now. Cool. Yeah. So he he went to school in Prescott, Arizona. And so has always been a big fan of canyon landscapes and Hell's Canyon, which is just to the east of us. It's the border, the Snake River Canyon, the border between Oregon and Idaho, which is actually the deepest canyon in North America. That That's just, you know, just 30 miles east of here. So Danny in 2004 called me and said, Hey, do you want to go to Hell's Canyon? And I said, yes, I do. And so that's how I first came to Wallowa County. And so we went, we came out here, did some hiking around and backpacking and checked out Canyon country. And then I just fell in love with the place and kept coming back because it was so stunning. You know, there's the, the canyons, which are a landscape unto themselves. And then there's also the Wallowa mountains, which are to the South and West of us. And they're the largest wilderness area in Oregon. And then there's the Zumwalt Prairie, which is the largest intact bunchgrass prairie of its type in North America. So there's three really impressive and special ecosystems that come together in this place. And that, I think, kind of grabbed me. And then as I learned more about the place and met people here, I, I just got drawn in by the characters and the types of people who were here. So can you tell me a little bit about those characters and the people you met? What was the town like when you first came to Joseph? Not dissimilar to what it is now. I mean, maybe there were a few more empty storefronts 10 plus years ago, 12 years ago. But the character, I feel like the character and the nature of this place hasn't changed a ton since then. Um, You know, there's probably a little bit more tourism than there was back in 2004. But, um, you know, the economy here is, last I looked, last I checked the stats was comprised of three main segments, which are kind of, you know, farming and ranching, um, tourism, and then other industries. So there's, for a rural place, a reasonably diverse economy. And so tourism's been going on here for quite a while. And for a long time, logging was a big part of the economy. But because of those natural resource-based economies, and because of the fact that it's a really rural and remote part of the country, people are really self-sufficient and they figure out how to make and do things for themselves and, and take care. Of course, hunting is a big part of the culture here. There's a lot of, um, a lot of ranching and a lot of big ranches here. And of course, you know, those folks 
way out in the middle of nowhere have to figure out how to make things work when they break down and, um, you know, they rely on their neighbors to some extent, but also kind of have to figure things out as they come up. So there's a lot of that, you know, bootstraps attitude. Um, and I think that creates a, a community here that's really interesting in that folks figure out how to work together, but also kind of let each other do their own thing. So it's, it's libertarian in a sense, but also a really tightly knit community. And, um, you know, and I observed that and, and kind of saw how people were getting along and figuring things out without really a whole lot of outside input or interference. And that really attracted me and also kind of sparked the idea that the skills were here, the types of people were here to do a folk school. You know, there's tons of folks here who work with clay and ceramics and there's a a local blacksmith and there's a saddle maker and other leather workers. And of course there's, there's a local Sawyer and a number of loggers and folks doing that. So there are all these skills, all these, you know, lifelong skills that um, really tie in well with what we're trying to do at the folk school. You Sorry, you said Sawyer. What, what is a Sawyer? Sawyer is a someone who operates a sawmill, someone who cuts oh. cuts logs into <laughs> yeah. lumber. You know what? I, I would have guessed that, but I actually had never heard that term before. So Yeah. And then there's there's the other confusing term, which is boyer, and that's someone who makes bows. Oh. Which we also have. Actually there are two boyers in Wallowa County. So Oh wow. And so have they been well, I wanna back up for a second. So tell me when you had this idea, did what came first? The hotel idea or the folk school idea? That's an interesting question. I think I had this dream about a folk school. They wow. Were probably pretty, they were probably pretty concurrent, actually, because I took my, folk, my first folk school class when I, did my, when I cut my timber frame for my cabin in 2010. And that was also all, when I was first looking at the hotel. So I started looking at the hotel in July 4th of 2010. And I did my timber frame class just before then in June. So they they kind of grew up together in a sense, but they tied together in that a big, a big part of the reason why I felt like Joseph and Wallowa County was a good place to do a hotel project was because I believed that at some future point I could do a folk school here. Right, right. And so what was what was the response like when you came? So you came up with this idea, you had this dream, which is pretty amazing. Um and then you start looking at Joseph. And like you say, it's this really tight-knit community, uh, an eclectic mix of people, people who have clearly, you know, been self-sufficient and living just fine, probably, you know, the way they've been living for uh, quite a while. And then you come in with this idea for the folk school and, and the hotel. And so what was the response like from the community? I've had nothing but a positive response. The building, the, the building that the... Jennings Hotel is in, which was actually built as the Jennings Hotel in 1910, um, was kind of derelict before I bought the upstairs anyway. There were two downstairs main floor, ground floor tenants that were operating. And so, you know, the ground floor had life, but upstairs was some rundown apartments. And so it wasn't bringing a lot to the the kind of street life or downtown core because I we were we are right in the middle or across the street from the post office. So it's kind of the middle of the middle of downtown, and um, they, it just wasn't there wasn't a lot going on here. And I think that um, by doing something here, by 
by doing the work and trying to refurbish the hotel, people saw, even if they didn't understand exactly what I was doing, they saw that I was doing the work and, and, and trying to improve the place. And so people were really, have been really positive about that. Um, so that's, yeah. So from as far as the community is concerned, I feel like the response has been really positive. And now with the folk school, which is still very young, um, it's been similar, you know, the building that we are operating out of is a really rundown old brick building that's just kitty corner across the street from the hotel. And it um, it also needs a ton of work. And but people love the building. It's this beautiful brick building. And, you know, it's been there for probably 100 years and folks have seen it and know it. And so now that something's going on there, I think people are excited to see life happening there because you know, for most of the last probably 20 to 30 years, there hasn't really been anything happening in the building. And so people, you know, I think the community is excited just to see it come, you know, some life happening there. Yeah. So, so tell me about what's happening there. Tell us about the school and some of the classes you're offering. So we did our, basically did our first round of classes, if you will. We haven't we haven't gotten year-round classes scheduled out on a full-time basis yet, but our first round of classes was in the spring, and we had um, we had everything from a natural dyes class and a blacksmithing class to a weaving, and um, and then and we you had did, a you had a cabin building workshop as well, right? I think I saw that. that on yeah, that was so that just finished. That was one of our summer 2017 classes. So we had a Japanese-style timber frame class, which. One of my co-conspirators, Tom uh, Bonamici, helped to put together. So he he's done a number of timber frame workshops, and and specifically in the Japanese style of layout, which is different than the European and American typical European and American style timber framing. So he, you know, we've talked about this for quite a while, and um, yeah, and so we just did that class, and folks came from all over the country to take part. It was really um, really incredible. So we had 12 students and we cut two timber frames. And then on the last day of class, we raised both of them. So now we have two um, 10 by 16 timber frames hanging out in Joseph. And so and what are you going to do with those timber frame cabinets? They're for sale, actually. And you know, the sale, because we're a nonprofit, we, the sale of the um, of the frames actually will go back to benefit the school and continue to help fund more programming and buying tools and, you know, whatever other things that we need. But yeah, for the time being, one of them is right next to the little brick building. That's, that is going to be the the future and permanent home of Prairie Mountain. And then the other one is next door to the hotel and the, in a courtyard that we also own. Oh, that's so cool. Wait, so that's interesting that you're a nonprofit. Tell me about that. What was behind the decision to become a nonprofit? Um, that's a great question. I think in part, we liked the idea or the opportunity to be able to seek grant funding. Um, we haven't gotten any major grants as yet. Um, my partner, Ashley has gotten one grant for some food related classes in Wallow County. So that's been awesome. Um, but other than that, we haven't really sought any, any grant funding. Um, in part, it has to do with the fact that it turns out education isn't a terribly, lucrative um, business. (laughs) So the opportunity to be able to seek grant funding, I think in the long term and going forward will be helpful. And then I also also think it really is uh, meant for 
community benefit and, and public benefit. And, and so I don't, I didn't want to have to have any sort of profit motive associated with giving people these opportunities. And so doing it as a nonprofit is kind of allowed a different approach. I want, obviously our goal is that the school is self-sustaining just based on the classes that we operate, but we also don't, um, especially in these early days, don't want to have the mission hindered by seeking profit first. Yeah, that's no, that's a, that's a wonderful model. Um, and one of the things I was actually struck by as I was looking through the offerings of these classes is, is how relatively affordable they are considering what you're getting. I mean, considering that the timber frame workshop was, was what, eight days? Eight days. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the cost is considering what you're, what you're getting, it's pretty remarkable, especially for some of your day classes as well. And, um, yeah, I wondered just so does keeping it a nonprofit help you keep costs low as well? That's the hope. Um, going forward, obviously, you know, having full enrollment is really helpful. So, you know, most of our classes are limited class size just based on instructional uh, limitations and tool limitations. Um, but, you know, the first major factor in actually making the classes work is just being sure that they're as fully enrolled as possible. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, sometimes that's a challenge. I'm sure that the same holds true in any educational uh, platform. But we we feel really lucky. And so far, the response has been pretty positive. And, you know, wherever possible and however possible, we are trying to keep the classes affordable for folks. And, you know, there's, of course, um, materials costs associated especially with something like a timber framing class where it's quite a bit of timber that we have to use to make these structures. So, you know, there are fixed costs that we can't get around, but um, as far as instruction is concerned, we're trying to keep it as, as um, affordable as possible for everyone. Right. Which I think opens up the, the, it makes it more accessible for people to come from all over, like you said. So can you tell me about some of the people who were who came to this first round of classes that you had in the spring and the summer? What 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 kinds of people are attracted to the folk school and to Joseph? Well, that's a great, also a great question. It, the whole idea with folk education is that it's meant to be multi generational and intergenerational. So we've had, you know, we've had folks anywhere from eighteen to probably seventy plus years old in the various classes that we've taught so far. The timber frame course was um we had a spread of probably eighteen year olds to forty five or so. Um so it was a relatively good spread and those folks came from all over the country. We had folks from Texas, New York, um Michigan, Seattle, California, kind of all over the country, which is really cool and really special. And I think part of that is that Japanese style timber framing is a really unique and interesting um, course that you, you don't find a lot of schools that teach it. So that's another one of our goals is to try and have our course offerings be as unique and different as possible. Um, so that I think what it's definitely one of the factors in, in getting folks to come from far and wide for this class. And did you hear about some of their stories? Like, did they tell you why, the reasons that, that they decided to enroll in the class? Are these people with building backgrounds? Actually, no one in the class, or, you know, maybe one or two students had some sort of building background. But for the most part, yeah, folks were pretty green when they came to the class, um, which was awesome because, you know, it prevents people from bringing their bad habits in. Yeah. Uh, 
that's that's not to say that having a construction background is is negative but it's cool to be able to watch people learn how to use their tools better and how to and how to do layout and all these all these things because the class started with um, a lot of talking about the layout and and history of timber framing and why you might do it and that kind of stuff and then goes into layout and then ultimately into actually cutting the frame and finally assembling it and it's it's pretty remarkable to see people's confidence change as they interact with the process more. So yeah, the, the skill levels or the experience levels were, were relatively low in the class. And that's one of the great things also, I think about folk education is you can take people who, who have virtually no experience in these types of things. And at the end of it, you have, a building in the case of a timber frame class or a chair or a basket or a weaving or whatever it is. And, you know, there's a beautiful thing at the end of it, which has a story from the get go. And it's something that you made with your own hands and put your blood and sweat and tears into it. And that, I think that is the most beautiful thing about folk education is you created something that has a story, which is really magic. And people can can tell that story and talk about it for the rest of their life. Yeah, I know. When you're, As you're talking about this, it's just, I'm thinking here in Los Angeles, this is just so missing from, from my daily life and from, you know, when you live in a big city or even actually really anywhere in the modern world, we're so reliant on everything's made for us. You know, and, and a lot of us ne- don't have any of these kinds of experiences of really the most basic human things. Um, so, you know, I, I wonder, do you see that kind of like spark go off too in people's heads as they're taking these classes that like, oh, wow, this is something that, you know, is really missing in my life and maybe I need more of this. Or I don't know. I wonder if you could just kind of talk about that idea for a little bit. No, absolutely. I, I think, again, this is one of that, the kind of core tenets of the idea of folk education and why I feel like it's so important at this point in time, because you're absolutely right. It's not just about stepping away from your computer or your screen, which is something that people spend so much time doing now and actually getting back to our kind of <laughs> our monkey brains and using those those skills that we were built for by using our hands and our head together to make things. But also the thing that happens um, is really deep connections and and community building, which I think people are also hungering for. So, you know, by the end of the class, our students are hanging out together, spending time together outside of class and having great conversations and becoming and becoming deep friends. And that and that I think is, you know, maybe even more important than the object or the experience of building something is that you are connecting with someone and then also with a place. And I think that's another important part of a folk education or in the case of Prairie Mountain, what we're doing here is we're trying to bring people out of their normal habits, out of their day-to-day lives, because I think it creates a space where people use their brains differently. You're, you're tuned on, tuned in or turned on in a way that you don't normally do in your daily life um, when you wake up in the morning and make your coffee and check your internet and then just get into that groove. You're in this beautiful, beautiful place, which is stunning in every direction and just opens your mind and your eyes and your heart in a way that is really incredible. And I think that's um, that's another really powerful aspect of, of what I feel like we're doing with Prairie Mountain. And and it, you, it's it's very evident. I mean, you can see it happen and it's really special. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned community because as I'm having these conversations with people all over the world and really mostly in urban areas, you're you're kind of the first person I've talked to who's really living the life that we all want to escape to. <laughs> um, but the thing that comes up over and over again, no matter what people are doing, is that what's missing most beyond even nature and time outdoors and time away from screens is that sense of just connecting with other people. You And you don't realize it until you're in that situation, working with people, just, you know, being outside, working on something together that that's, it's really missing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's why, again, why for me doing the folk school and collaborating with the folks we have um, has been so incredible. It's just seeing seeing that happen, seeing it happen in real time and, and watching people's watching that transformation is really incredible. Yeah. So, oh, so tell me about the people who are teaching these classes. Tell me about where they come from. Are they Joseph natives? Um, we've had some folks, some local folks where, wherever we can and whenever possible, we're trying to use local instructors. And then um, my buddy, Tom, along with my partner, Ashley, who co-founded co um, Prairie Mountain, um, Tom's teaching quite a few classes because he's widely skilled and has a lot of uh, traditional craft uh, experience. So he's been teaching a number of classes. We've got um, some folks from out of the area, too. I have a woman, Amber Jensen, who came up for a weaving class. She lives down in Marshall, North Carolina. And, you know, going forward, it's uh, to some extent, it's going to be wherever the skills are available. If if people are here that that have the skills we want to teach, then that's definitely the ideal. But we're happy also to take instructor instructors, get instructors from anywhere. Um, it's also cool, I think, because from a kind of cultural perspective, bringing in those outside voices or bringing in those different perspectives and different traditions of craft is a cool way to introduce new ideas to um to this place to Wallowa County like we just had my good friend Hall Newbegin was here and he has a company called Juniper Ridge their wilderness perfumery Oh I saw and that on your site yeah tell tell us more about that Yeah so Hall is is a total freak uh and amazing <laughs> naturalist and perfumer and he loves the outdoors like no one you've ever met and the way he connects with it is through our sense of smell and so he leads these walks kind of all over the place but he when we came here we went for a walk in the mountains and you literally dig your face in the dirt and smell the earth and connect with the landscape on a really visceral level and so and then you know in the end we harvest a tiny amount of plant material and distill it into uh, a hydrosol which is you know in essence a little a little spray, a little water-based spray that you can use as a spritzer or whatever. So that, um, so yeah, Hall came and did that. And, and he's one of those people that brings that perspective, you know, he's an amazing naturalist, but he also brings a, a perspective of kind of geologic time and talks about the landscape and, and, and the place wherever he is and about the plants in that place and their, and their, um, their history and their geologic time in a sense and, and evolution. And it's cool to see people learning deeply, but also learning with their senses, like learning about the history of these things, but also experiencing them in a way that's really intimate and, and um, it connects. I think it connects people in a way that is difficult to achieve 
otherwise. Um, when you know, when you have your face in the dirt and you're smelling, <laughs> smelling where the plants come from, it's a different and it's it's a meditation. You know, you you really slow down and calm down, and it's pretty cool. It's cool to see. It's transformative. Yeah, and you really, you also really, I think, remember. Uh, your surroundings and the plants in a way that you don't just by looking at it. It's kind of interesting because I've been taking this um, outdoor survival sort of class with my girls here in LA and we do a fair amount of foraging and and just learning about different plants. And I've noticed that the ones that I've tasted, like we've ta- when we taste wild radishes, we remember what that plant looks like. Whereas, you know, when someone just points out like, oh, this is, you know, this plant, don't eat it. Uh, it's It's not as easy to remember. Totally. And the same, and the same is true with, with our sense of smell, of course, you know, I think it's our most powerful sense in terms of nostalgia, you know, you can smell something from your youth and be brought straight back. And the same is true when you go on a walk and you, and you smell the plants, uh, it really, I think it really helps it sink in. Yeah, I can imagine. And so, and then this, after they take this walk, then they go and make a batch of perfume, right? Exactly. Yeah. In this case, just a hydrosol, which is, um, you know, like a little, just a little bottle of spritzer, like a two ounce bottle. And, um, but it's has, it has the essence of that time and that place in, in, you know, brings you back every time you use it, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of people spritzing themselves in New York and then <laughs> hopping on a plane to come back to Joseph. I'm, I'm sure you're going to... Totally. Have you found that some people have... I know the, the school is relatively new, but is it the kind of place? Have you have you seen people come visit and then just keep coming back? And then all of a sudden they're like, you know what? I think I want to live here. Uh, we haven't had anyone... I would say this happens uh, with relative frequency at the hotel. We definitely have... Uh, quite a few repeat guests, which is kind of the greatest compliment we can receive when people continue to come back. Um, but no one has yet made the leap to move here, which is a much, much larger challenge. I mean, we're at the end of the road, literally, and it's a tiny community, 7,000 people in the whole county. And, you know, jobs are hard to come by. Yeah. And living here, <laughs> living here isn't easy. The The winters are pretty harsh. And I think you know, there's that romantic idea of living in a small town in the mountains. And then there's the reality of, oh, wait, <laughs> where am I going to work? How am I going to earn money? Where am I going to live? And and do I really want to live through, you know, 12 degree winters? <laughs> right, right. And I think you just touched on something important, which is that, you know, we, so many of us who live in cities have this fantasy of escaping to somewhere, somewhere like Joseph and, and doing what you're doing full time. But there is that reality of of living that life around around the clock. And so, you know, I, do you see this as, as something that you're going to do long term? Do you feel like this is the, your home that you found? I think so. Yeah, I, I love it here. I, and I also spent a long time dreaming about and, and working on figuring out how to do this. You know, I knew I wanted to live in a small town in the mountains since I was probably 14 years old. And it, didn't actually happen until 20 plus years later. So it's something that I deliberated on for a long time. And then again, I visited here for nearly a decade before I made the decision to actually buy a place and and then come here and make it my home. So um, yeah, I love it here. 
Um, you know, there might be a time when projects, other projects bring me elsewhere, but this is the place that I, that I want to be my home. Yeah. Well, it sounds wonderful. Can you, and just tell me more about the hotel and, and the home that you're creating, because we haven't really had a chance to talk about that yet. Yeah. The Jennings, again, it was one of the, I'm, I call myself an accidental hotelier and, and the, the Jennings, a, a hotel in progress. And once it's finished, if it's ever finished, an iterative hotel, because it's, it's land somewhere between hotel and hostel and sauna and something, <laughs> something an else. In, and an artist residence, right? And an artist residency, indeed. Yeah. So it's it's unique in a in a bunch of different ways, um, but I think one of the one of the big things for for us is the artist residency program. And you know the way we did the project with uh, having a Kickstarter to raise funds to do the renovations. And you, and sorry to interrupt you. Is, is it really, you're the first hotel that ever has been Kickstarter funded funded so far as I've been able to tell. And I had a, I had someone else fact check that. And the source they spoke with at Kickstarter said the same thing so far as we can tell. Wow. <laughs> so, um, to, and that, I mean, I can't imagine no one else has had the idea before, Maybe, but maybe it seems like I was the first person to do it. Um, and to, but also it seemed like the obvious thing to do for me. Um, because as a young business, there was virtually no way a bank was going to lend me money to remodel a hotel when I had no experience running a hotel and when I had no income to show for the project. Right. And it's such a so, risky investment anyway, even for an experienced, um, hotelier or, or someone. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, hotel any self-respecting hotel developer would never touch a, a nine, ten, or twelve, or fifteen-room hotel. It's just there's an economy of scale <laughs> issue there. So, so you know, it also took a person, a slightly pr crazy person, to do something like this. And then I'm, you know, part of the goal of the Kickstarter or the way that we've been doing this is by having each room designed by a different designer, which is also the least efficient way on the planet to build anything and particularly a hotel. So why? Cause it just takes know, so long for, yeah, it takes so long. And, um, you know, you've probably been to hotels before and what you've probably noted is that virtually every room is exactly the same with the same furniture and the same art and the same bathroom fixtures and the same everything else. And, almost nothing in the Jennings hotel is the same room to room. And so, you know, that just takes a lot more time and a lot more energy and a lot more money to pull off. Um, so the way, you know, the only way we've been able to do it is by doing a lot of the work ourselves. So I've been in charge of a lot of the construction and um, with help, I had a, my buddy, Michael was working with me all last winter, helping out a ton. And then, you know, I have some freelance guys here and there that come in to help out as well. But, um, you know, there's no way that we could have pulled it off without a lot of sweat equity. I can, and I then can imagine. just the, you know, the generosity and kindness of people, other, you know, of the, all the designers who've been involved and their willingness to work on a project that's definitely, you know, can only be defined as a passion project. And I think people recognize that. And I gave, pretty great degree of creative creative freedom to designers involved and you know people don't i think people don't get that opportunity very often and so when presented with it they're excited about it and and the idea of working on a cool passion project that gives a lot of creative freedom is worth doing 
um, even if it's not lucrative. And, you know, it's because of that generosity that we've been able to make this work. And can you describe some of the really distinctive elements of some of these hotel rooms, what, what some of these artists have contributed? Oh, man, it's, uh, that's a hard thing to describe in words. <laughs> I know, I should just <laughs> send is, people to the site to go. <laughs> yeah, this is why I take photographs. I exactly. mean, I think the, the thing that's unique or the thing that's interesting is that really, truly, each room is, an, is a distinct experience with a very different design sensibility and feel. All of the rooms have a strong sense of design, but none of them have repeating elements that that are you know that tie them together in some sort of logical fashion it's design that ties everything together so um you know one of our rooms which is designed down the hall which was designed by um Carrie Reinertson and Robert Maddox who together they're they're um husband and wife team and they have a firm called Shelter Collective they did a bunch of really amazing stuff they did a bunch custom upholstery custom tables table legs they, they we built arches. We built archways into their rooms for several doorways. They did um, a custom leather wall hanging that they designed and built. And then um, another room is by Tom Bonamici, who taught the timber frame class. And his is, his room is super shaker inspired. So there's a lot of peg rail and the ministry blue, which is kind of the official blue of the shaker, shaker world. And um, those two rooms design-wise have very little to do with each other, but both have a strong sense of design. And so I think it's that's what's cool for people when they come visit is that it really is a totally different experience in each room. Yeah. And I had fun looking through some of the rooms on, on your site, just exploring the kind of, kind of falling in the wormhole of exploring all these different artists and their websites and their work. And it's really it really does seem like this amazing community that you're bringing together. That's a very good way to describe it. And I mean, I can't be anything other than super thankful for the opportunity and, and, you know, all, you know, all these designers either were friends of mine or have become good friends of mine through this process. And then also all the artists who've been involved in the residency over time. It's, it's, yeah, I feel really, really lucky. Yeah. What's good for you. So, so Greg, tell us, if someone is looking to do to kind of maybe rep, not replicate what you're doing, but start a folk school on their own, or, or like you say, be a crazy person and decide to take <laughs> over a hotel, do you have any advice for them? My my advice is is almost always the same, which is to be a realistic dreamer. Uh, you know, it's easy to dream, and and I think that's great and super important. And it's it's also the first part of any creative process is dreaming about it and thinking about it and having an idea. But you also have to have that come to Jesus moment where you say to, where you you know look yourself up and down, and look at your resources and decide whether you can actually pull it off. I mean, there, I'm I'm two two and a half years into working on the Jennings hotel and I'm not done yet. There's still more rooms to remodel. And so it's taken longer than expected, of course. And in some ways has gotten further along than expected. But, uh, you know, I, I think I knew from the get go that I would be able to do it and that it would take a long time. Um, so that's my biggest piece of advice is just be realistic about it. I think everyone's capable of accomplishing their dreams 
as long as they aren't totally insane moonshots. Um, you know, there's a few people who can do that. Elon Musk is a pretty good example of someone who accomplishes those things. But, you know, he also has a lot of resources. Right. And so, and what about people looking to move more into this, this heritage, this traditional crafts world, who really don't, just don't know where to start? Well, I think there are examples of folk schools throughout the country. Um, many of them are on the East Coast and, and Midwest, North Houses and Grand Marais that I mentioned. There's the John C. Campbell down in North Carolina and uh, Yestermorrow, which is up in Vermont. Um, they're, they're, they bill themselves as a, as a design build school or more of a building, you know, building trades school in a sense, but they're doing a lot of things in a traditional way with timber framing and stuff. So I think it's a, those uh, interfaces are really good entry points for folks who just don't have any experience. Um, you know, most of the time in the, at these schools, tools are provided and then you also have a workshop space and, instruction. So at the end of the day, it's a pretty good value because you're getting everything you need to dip your toes in the water and then decide going forward if you want to continue to do it. Um, Then, of course, there are tons of books on virtually every subject you can imagine and YouTube videos and all that stuff. But um, I feel like folk schools are a really good way to to try it out and see if you're see if it sparks anything and gets you excited. Right, right. To do the dirt time, as you said. Exactly. So yeah. just a last question, just to kind of put this all in the context of uncivilizing and, and this crazy kind of, not kind of, this crazy 21st century world we're all sort of tumbling into. It, do you, is what you're doing with the traditional crafts and, and, you know, carving out this community in a small town like Joseph, it, I don't even know how to put this. Is this, it, do you think that this is like a fad that we're going through, like kind of like the last you know, look at the way we used to live kind of being sentimental? Or do you think this is a real model for the future? Do you see this as an expanding movement? I'd love to get your thoughts on how you kind of view the future. Oh, man, the future. Sorry to lay that big question on you. But no, it's a it's a great question. It's a it's a wild and wonderful place. It's it's paradoxical, right? Because at once you see everyone in the world with an iPhone in their pocket or everyone in our country, at least and soon to be the world, maybe. And then at the same time, you see exactly what we've been talking about, which is people disconnected from community and and connections and deep, meaningful friendships. And that's alarming. And, And there's you can you can certainly build a kind of community online and with digital interactions. I mean, I know tons of people who've met through Instagram, but the truth of the matter is, I think that, that those things are best used as a conduit. Um, my, Tom says that the internet is a, a great tool and not a great hobby, and um, and I couldn't agree more as a tool for connecting people with with similar interest or a tool to get people into the things where they actually make real life connections it's great but i think that the larger thing at play here is people want and need actual human interaction and community and so I don't see it as a fad. I see it as something that is deeply human that people want to get back to and are now maybe more than ever looking for ways to do that. And that's why uh, folk education or just whatever, however, whatever your conduit is into community, um, why those things are so 
so important now because people need that sense um, because of the disconnectedness of, of digital communication and, and the social media world. Yeah. Well, well said. Well said. And I agree a hundred percent. So speaking of connecting with you or connecting as a tool, where can people connect with you online so that they can hopefully come visit you in person? So our website for Prairie Mountain is prairiemountainschool.com. And that's where people can see all the classes we currently have running, learn a little bit more about um, the school. And then also, I should probably mention coming up, we're aiming for October, we're going to be launching a Kickstarter to raise funds to fix up our little building. So that's going to be coming up soon, too. Um, and then the hotel is uh, JenningsHotel.com. Wonderful. And you're on Instagram as well, like you yep, mentioned before. Exactly. Okay. And yep. you want to just repeat those handles one more time? Yeah. So my personal is Greg Hennis, and the um, the hotel is the Jennings Hotel, and Prairie Mountain is Prairie Mountain School. Thank you so much. And is there anything else that you want to add that I didn't get to ask you about today? No, this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking oh, to you. Thank you so much, Greg. And hopefully I'm, I'm already starting to plan my trip up to Joseph with my family. So hopefully I'll get to you're, say hi to you in person soon. Yeah, you're, you're making a good choice. You you will love it here. It's a super special part of the world. It, I, it looks gorgeous. I can't wait. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show with Greg. And by the way, if you are interested in learning more about Prairie Mountain School and maybe even planning a visit, uh, he has a great newsletter that you can sign up for on the bottom of the Prairie Mountain School website. That's www.prairiemountainschool.com. And if you like today's show, please subscribe and also consider leaving us a rating on iTunes. I would be so grateful. And I would also just love to hear your thoughts about the show over on my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson. That is it for me this week. And I will be back next Monday with a new episode for you of the Uncivilized Podcast.